KUT's next AT Explained live show is April 3rd. Brand new stories about Austin's people, places, and culture told live on stage by your favorite KUT journalists. I've never gotten any specific invites from Steiner Ranch. And that's about the time Charlie chomped down on that chicken. I will hypnotize you into securing my law services. Join us April 3rd at the Paramount Theater for KUT's next AT Explained Live. Tickets are on sale now. Get them at austintheater.org. And we'll see you there. From KUT and KUTX Studios. This is Morning Edition on KUT 90.5. Broadcasting portions of our show live today from the neighborhood around 12th and Chacon Streets in East Austin. I'm Jennifer Staten. Churches have long been a mainstay in East Austin. Many houses of worship here have roots going back more than a century. But as new development rolls through the neighborhood... It's for some churches to close their doors and relocate. KUT's Saida Hassan reports on how some congregations have adapted. In a few minutes, Pastor Clarence Jones has a meeting with a potential buyer. So if you notice this, you were coming in, you saw the for sale sign. He's been having a lot of these meetings over the past two years, ever since church leaders decided to put the Greater St. John Baptist Church up for sale. Hopefully it will sell and we can relocate. <laughs> uh, so that's what we're looking forward to at this time. The decision to sell didn't come lightly. Jones says the church has been here at the corner of Greenwood and Pennsylvania Avenues since 1945. But lately, he says the neighborhood feels more crowded. We would love to have been able to stay here, but as you look around, there's not any land uh, to use as parking or else to build a larger church on. Just across Pennsylvania Avenue, there's a new house being built. Another bright blue two-story home is for lease right across Greenwood. As more people move in, Jones says parking for church events has become scarce. They're considering new locations outside the city limits in Manor. We felt that that would be a good place to relocate. Uh, lots of people moving in and uh, right down the land is not quite expensive as it is here in Austin. In fact, Jones's own family recently left Austin for Manor, as has much of his congregation. His wife, Brenda Jones, says when she was growing up, the neighborhood around the church was predominantly African-American. She says, in a sense, the new diversity is a good thing and the church is open to everyone, but she hasn't felt welcomed by new residents. They don't want us to have the loud music, the worshiping hours, so... It's time that we should move. So it's really about the time, you know what I mean? It's time for the church to spread our wings. A couple miles east, another church has already made the move. I think the people were just so happy, number one, to be in a larger space. Renette Bledsoe is the senior warden at the St. James Episcopal Church. A few years ago, the church left its old home on MLK and moved to a spacious new facility on Weberville Road. Bledsoe says they made it a point to stay in East Austin. That's just simply the historical foundation of this church. And... Sure, the church could have moved someplace else, but that is not what the people wanted. Bledso says the church follows a philosophy of, quote, radical hospitality, making a point to include people of all ages, ethnicities, and sexual orientations. St. James was originally founded in 1941 as a space for African Americans, who at the time weren't welcome at Austin's white Episcopal churches. Bledso says members actively recruited a more diverse congregation. People made a, an effort to go out and invite others to come and to worship. People that may not have looked like like them, 
to invite them to come in and to worship and then more people invited people to come in. Today, St. James hosts a weekly service in Spanish. Bledsoe says some members commute from as far away as Burnett or Taylor to come worship. Still, some say the loss of nearby residents makes it hard for East Austin churches to hold on to their roots. It's a huge blow to the community. Nefertiti Jackman is the executive director of Six Square, a nonprofit that works to preserve and celebrate African-American heritage in Central East Austin. The group's office sits down the street from a Methodist church on San Bernard Street, Jackman says on Sunday mornings, the neighborhood is transformed. There's cars parked everywhere. There's a vibrancy with people coming and going as they're worshiping. But you don't see that during the week, and it's really unfortunate. Jackman says she hopes to see creative uses for churches that are struggling to retain membership, uses that would keep them active throughout the week. She's hopeful about a new city program that would allow for houses of worship to rent out spaces to artists as a source of revenue. And I've long thought about that. How can we partner churches with other nonprofit organizations looking for space? And the churches need the revenue. Many of them need the revenue because they don't have a large congregation anymore. Back at the Greater St. John Baptist Church, Pastor Jones says he hasn't given much thought to what might happen to the property once it's sold. We really just want to get as much as we can for the property and then move on. And I know that most places they are putting up condos uh, and, uh, you know, apartment complexes. So we're thinking that that may be just what happens here. Jones says the thought of leaving East Austin is bittersweet, but he thinks wherever the church moves, his congregation will follow. Saida Hassan, KUT News. Broadcasting live from 12th and Chacon at the Urban Collab in East Austin this morning as we wrap up our On My Block project. You can find all the stories in our series at onmyblockatx.org. That's onmyblockatx.org. I'm Jennifer Staten. This is KUT 90.5. We're coming up on 629. This is Morning Edition on KUT 90.5, broadcasting portions of our show live today from the Urban Collab at 12th and Chacon Streets in East Austin. I'm Jennifer Staten. A few years ago, in 2014, data came out about Austin's African-American population. Those numbers were pretty revealing and distressing. Here's a recap. While the city's overall population had exploded over the past few decades, Austin's African-American population declined over the past 20 years. Looking specifically at 2000 to 2010, African-Americans were the only racial group in Austin that saw a drop in numbers. Austin was also the only fast-growing city in the country that had a decrease in its African-American population during that stretch. Dr. Eric Tang is an associate professor at the Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis at UT Austin. After analyzing that data a few years back, Tang wanted to look more closely at why African-Americans were leaving Austin, specifically East Austin. To find out, he went straight to the source. I talked with Eric Tang recently about this new research. We uh, realized that many of the folks who had moved out of the city limits to outlying suburban areas return on Sundays for church. And this gave us an opportunity to interview them after church services. We interviewed about 100 former residents of Austin who return on Sundays. 
and found that the vast majority of them felt that they had moved not out of choice, but because they felt compelled to move due to affordability, especially housing affordability. How then did people rate their quality of life after leaving? By and large, our respondents said that their quality of life decreased. Their quality of life, especially in the eastern reaches of the city, is inferior to um, to what they experienced when they lived in the urban core. So the defining feature of gentrification isn't so much that neighborhoods turn over and you know there are new populations with higher incomes that move in. It's the displacement of longstanding residents from the urban core to areas where they're more vulnerable. What we saw out in the east, the eastern reaches of the city, proved this out, that the majority of people who moved there said that they have less access to supermarkets, to healthcare centers, that they have poorer transportation options, and on the whole, their quality of life suffered. Did that surprise you at all? It didn't surprise me. Um, What surprised me more than anything was the fact that many of them also moved not only for reasons of affordability, but because they also felt that the AISD um, schools were not giving their children a fair shake. It surprised me to see how many parents who moved to um, the Del Valley system or the Elgin system felt that their, their children were getting a fair shake out east. The reason they felt that way was because the schools out there were far less segregated. Did respondents say anything about cultural factor or you could also call it systemic factors as reasons for leaving? I mean, I'm thinking of interactions, say, between police and residents, for example. Was that cited very often? Yes. Many respondents felt that Austin was not a welcoming city for African-Americans. And that was the third leading reason that respondents gave for why they moved out and why many of them won't return. They felt that Austin, despite its progressive reputation, despite its reputation as a tolerant city, as a multicultural city, was um, by and large hostile to African-Americans. In addition to that, the black public sphere in Austin, which used to be on the east side, 12th Street, 11th Street, has over the past two or three decades been decimated um, owing to gentrification, but also before that, urban renewal efforts. There isn't this this draw, this, this, this magnet, this nucleus here in East Austin that keeps many residents here, African-American residents, that is, that continues to draw them back to the urban core. I think you asked respondents if they would ever come back to Austin. What did they tell you when you asked them, you know, would you ever come back? A majority of respondents said that they would come back if housing were more affordable, if they could. And this did surprise us, especially coming from respondents who moved north to Pflugerville and Round Rock, where their amenities are pretty good and where their quality of life on the whole is is satisfactory. And so this points to this ineluctable sense of rootedness that many African-American Austinites have to their old communities. Uh, That sense of community and solidarity and rootedness that just can't be replaced once you move somewhere else. So what are the bigger picture long-term implications when a group of people, such as the folks you spoke to, who moved out not by choice, they're in their new place, life is not necessarily greater than it was before, they've still got a foot in their old home. What does that do to a group of people? Well, it does fragment a community. It does lead to 
a sense of historical and cultural loss. At the same time, there are acts of resilience on the part of community members who try to reestablish these connections in places like Pflugerville. But what it does long term is it, I think, erases uh, the legacy of African-Americans here in the city. And it overlooks the importance of this community historically uh, to, to Austin. And I think what it should flag for all of us is the need to deal with the affordability crisis in Austin writ large. Because what happened to the African-American population with respect to displacement and out-migration is, on the one hand, singular because it so it disproportionately impacted them, but not unique, meaning that what happened to them is a bellwether for the rest of the city. Every community, in some measure, is being affected by the affordability crisis that drove so many African-Americans out of the city. That's Dr. Eric Tang from UT Austin's Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis. As we heard, many people have left this part of East Austin, some by choice. Many, though, didn't have a choice. So what happens if you come back after a long and mandatory absence? KUT's Mose Bouchel has that story. This is a story about two guys and how a neighborhood shaped their lives. Testing. This is the first time I've ever used this mic, so you gotta forgive me. That's all right. Get it together. This is Andreas Mueller. I can honestly say this is the first time I've ever been recorded. Oh, yeah? Okay. Openly recorded. (laughs) And this is Matthew Malcolm Kleiman. I'm born in Brackenridge Hospital in 1979. They grew up together on the east side. Tell me a little bit about your family. Uh, Both my parents are radical activists hippies. <laughs> and my mother knew his mother from going to uh, UT from the 70s. So what's a good soundtrack for their childhood? Uh, I'm told by my parents the first record I ever heard was Jimi Hendrix Experience. This is how they remember it. Man, we would just little kids run around the neighborhood. If we seen a trampoline in your backyard, we would come knock on your door and ask you, can we jump on the trampoline? It was a family atmosphere. Old people used to sit on their porches and watch us and yelling at us, you know, while we were running through their yards, get off my grass. There were hard parts, too. Money was tight. Andreas's mom was sick with lupus. He started caring for her, even driving her around when he was just a kid. Matthew's parents often weren't around, so they say the neighborhood helped raise them. This is how Matt describes the east side back in the 80s. We were not poor. We were working class people. We were proud working class people. We were people that had everything in our communities and our neighborhoods that we needed. We had mom and pop grocery stores, Roy Lee's on Mana Road, okay? Guess what? Black owned, mom and pop. They were all over the east side. With a thousand smiles. You know, we never felt welcome on West, on West Austin, which is why we didn't go there. But uh, we were always at home on the east side. I think a lot of people that listen to whatever story comes out of this will probably imagine that you're a black guy. Maybe. Here I'm talking to Matt. A lot of people have thought that my entire life, though, especially just um, 
just hearing my voice. <laughs> it wasn't Matt. That's White Boy Matt. That's my name. White Boy Matt. <laughs> yeah. My oldest son, whenever he was about two or three, called him White Boy Matt. We all snapped on him. You don't get to call him White Boy Matt. You only call him Matt or Uncle Matt. But I think at that time, that's something that brought us together, too. Yeah. I have to say, like, you know, both of us, and for different reasons, weren't really even accepted in our own communities. Matthew, because he was a white guy who identified with black culture. Andreas, because he was mixed race. His dad is African-American. His mom, a white East German immigrant. Came over here by herself and was never married and ended up having, you know, a mixed child and, you know, an immigrant with a minority child, you know, growing up in Texas, you know, was, was something different. That might have been one of our early we're bonding points. Outcasts. Not, not ever knowing that. And a lot of our other friends were outcasts yeah. in different ways, too, yeah. you know. Things got harder, as they usually do, when the guys became teenagers. But it was more than just the usual challenges. Andreas's mom got sicker. Matt's parents divorced. This was in the early 90s. They say the neighborhood was changing, too. Gangs and violence kind of started to have this place in East Austin and it came into my life. Now here, they want to be careful. On one hand, they feel like the East Side got a bad rap when it came to crime. Don't let it be said that, no, you know, we were, we were like the normal. The whole East Side no, sound like, not you know, at all. No, because it was families over there. Yeah. You know, it yeah, wasn't trying to crack houses kids, right? on every block. Yeah. It was families over there. But on the other hand, they say drug dealing became part of their reality. What's this? This is criminal element, man. This is... Texas music, Houston. Yeah, Texas music. But, I mean, a lot of this music we used to listen to reflected of what we were in our environment was. You know, we, you know, you, you relate to what you see, what you live. So here's what they saw. Crack hits the street in the 80s. Police, who seem to turn a blind eye to drug use in white communities, start focusing on drug enforcement on the east side. You know, there's lawyers that live on the west side that snort up tons of cocaine, you know what I mean? They think some of that law enforcement created more chaos than it prevented. Older men were incarcerated. Boys like Matthew and Andreas started taking their place. That's, that was the best thing you could give me, knowing that my mom was finna die. Your best info that you can give me that I can take with me all 50 states in America to cook crack and I can get paid regardless what slum where I live at so that was that's that was the the, the teachings of survival eventually both friends did time in prison when Andreas got out in the early 2000s he could hardly recognize the East Austin he returned to the rents were up a lot of the old businesses were gone and there were a lot more white people around. You know, something I seen when I first got out of prison was, you know, it tripped me out. I caught a white woman walking down 12th Street at 3 o'clock in the morning, even though what am I doing at 3 in the morning? And I was like, I've never seen this. And the entire time, I'm 23, finna be 24 years old, and I've never seen this. Matt noticed it too. You're in your jogging shoes and your yoga pants walking up 12th Street, man. Are you kidding me? But for him, it played a little differently. Now, when I go to the east side, I'm just that white guy on the east side. Yeah, you're just that white guy that came into my neighborhood that bought a house here. A lot of the old neighbors were gone too, and Andreas's mom had passed away. He was in prison and couldn't keep up on tax payments for her house. So when he got out, he lost that too. And that was over 10 years ago. But Andreas stayed in town, and Matthew did too. They just ended up moving to a different part of it. It was a complete coincidence, but now they live just a few blocks away from each other, down the street from a local school on the south side. 
Andreas has a wife and kids. When he's not working, he volunteers coaching youth sports. I want to give back because I know how easy it is to get in trouble and not get out. Matt says he's focused on self-improvement, not drinking, not smoking. I'm boring, man. Okay. You know, I'm a tradesperson. I just work uh, with my hands, you know, carpentry, masonry. I like to do some music and stuff for fun. I walk my dogs. That's about yeah, the most you're going to catch me. to my practices. Yeah. <laughs> when they get together, they talk about the old neighborhood. They say it won't go back to the way they remember it as kids. The east side is not yeah. going to ever be the east side again, and it's because people don't want the east side. And they wonder if the crime they got caught up in somehow ended up contributing to the gentrification that came after. That violence created this uh, excuse, I think, to say, we have to go into this community and we have to fix, fix it for them. But they, but they, were, they were coming from an outside position. What really could fix it? They say it, it all comes down to money. Loans for family-owned businesses, wages that keep up with the cost of living, and funding for improved public schools. For Andres and Matthew, these solutions seem obvious. They just don't seem to get done. So the two friends focus on building a new community in a different part of town. Rose Bouchel, KAT News. You can find all the stories in our On My Block series at onmyblockatx.org. It's Morning Edition on KUT 90.5. I'm Jennifer Staten. We're broadcasting live this morning from the Urban Collab at the corner of 12th and Chacon Streets in East Austin. We're wrapping up our On My Block series, looking at this neighborhood and the changes it's undergone. We'll hear this morning from many people who have a stake in this neighborhood, but we want to listen back to a few of the voices we've heard over the past six months of this project. This was the only open club. When a whole block was dead, this place always was open. So half of the black community, well, the whole black community actually sat in the same backyard where we sitting at right now and play dominoes and they'd just be here all day and this was their spot. But as, as I moved in and life moved in and uh, the community changed, I probably see 50 people a week and come and be like, hey man, what happened to Club 40? You know, be like, man, I've been having this place two years. Like, where the people at? Man, I don't know. The high school here uh, was the Catalyst. Now, Catalyst is a bonding agent. When you put all the chemicals together, there's one particular chemical that bonds all the molecules and control and everything. That's what this school was. It was a bonding agent for the community. Now, think about, like I said, in chemistry, you don't have a catalyst, then everything just doesn't work. And that's what the school was. It was more than just a school. Sense of place and trying to find a sense of home in Austin and in Travis County um, has always been such a struggle for African Americans here because it seems like once you put down roots, you have to move. I mean, yeah, he represents the change by us, like, by us working together, you know what I mean? It's like a change to show that, you know, black and white can't get along, you know, but like I say, you know, I ain't never had that prejudice bone in my body, so, you know, you get along with me, I get along with you, you know, that's just me. Just a few of the people we've heard from in our On My Block series. 
At the beginning of our series back in October, we told the story of Anderson High School, a beacon of the black community in East Austin, until its forced closure in 1971 as part of desegregation. But Anderson wasn't the only neighborhood school to close. Keeling Junior High School did, too. It was reopened in the mid-1980s as a neighborhood school with a magnet program. The tensions of the past still linger in the school's hallways. KUT's Kate McGee reports the new principal there is trying to correct some of those mistakes of the past. Kenesha Coburn stands in the middle of the hallway in Keeling Middle School. Some students run by her. Coburn stops them, makes them go back to where they started, and walk. They don't make eye contact with me when they're sprinting. They're like, she, she didn't see me. She didn't. Coburn is in her second year as principal of Keeling Middle School, but she knows many of the students by name and jokes with them. Hey, Brajon. Hey, Glasgow. Y'all look tired. Food coma? Keeling has two programs in the cafeteria, the Magna program, which accepts students from across the district, and the neighborhood school known as the Academy program. One of the first things Coburn noticed was the racial division. Most of the students in the Magna program are white or Asian, and most of the students in the Academy program are black or brown. When you have an advanced academic program and the perception is that it only welcomes white and Asian students, then the message, intentional or not, to black and brown kids is, if that's what it looks like to be advanced academic, then obviously kids like me aren't. The school is academically successful, but that success isn't equal among students. Nearly all white students pass the state standardized tests. Those numbers are much lower for African-American and Hispanic students. But Coburn says that achievement gap doesn't mean black and brown students are intellectually inferior. Many of them bring issues to school that makes it more difficult to learn. I have students who the data that you see on paper for them is a function of mental health issues, um, family challenges that you can't learn yet because there are these big things that you're dealing with that are getting in the way. Coburn says the racial divide in the school today is also a reminder of Keeling's history. The mostly black school was closed in the 1970s because of forced desegregation. You had to leave your community and go across town and your school's name went. Like there's a whole lot of just nasty, deep, deep history of loss, whether or not it was intended to be that way. That's the feeling. A lot of her job is figuring out ways to get underrepresented students to realize their potential and open doors to success. And then once you start opening them and you see students or families not walk through, you realize that it's no longer just about the door being open, but the history being so pervasive that I don't feel like I'm going to be comfortable when I walk in, so I'm not going to. Coburn says she often pushes students into uncomfortable situations like harder classes, after-school clubs, or sports. This year, Keeling also changed its magnet admissions process, so half of the students are accepted based on their zip code. We've always said we want all kids, but we also operated a an admission system that didn't necessarily recognize kids from all over the city. Now, both Magnet and Academy students can take the same elective classes, and they have advisory period together. Coburn also implemented training for teachers about microaggressions. Many of the changes are driven by teachers, who she says took it upon themselves to examine the school's history and suggest changes to improve the school for all students. Our teachers are much more capable of and ready to 
collaborate across all of the lines that we have drawn in the sand, they didn't draw them. Um, They've been drawn by other people and they've been forced to live within them. Now, teachers can teach classes in the Magnet program and the Academy program too. Next fall, Coburn expects the new sixth grade class in the Magnet program to look a lot more diverse. She hopes that visible change will be the start of a new chapter in Keeling's history. Kate McGee, KUT News. You can find all of the stories in our On My Block series at onmyblockatx.org. That's onmyblockatx.org. I'm Jennifer Staten. This is KUT 90.5. It's 730. With KUT News in Austin, I'm Jimmy Moss. Every year around this time, clouds of green pollen descend on Austin. You can find it on the sidewalks, on cars, basically everywhere. KUT's Mose Bouchelle wanted to find out more about it. Now, he'll never think of trees in the same way again. A warning, this story does include some discussion of reproduction, both human and tree. It can be frustrating. Yes, you know, I just got my car washed. Just asked DeAndrea Bowens. I caught up with her on her way to the office. And literally got up the next morning, my car was covered with this green, you know, stuff. And even when you put water on it, it just, it makes an awful mess. It can be startling. I was sitting on the balcony and I looked at this tree just as a gust of wind caused this explosion of pollen from it. Just ask my coworker, Trey Shar. Never seen anything like it and I went, whoa. <laughs> it can even be sneeze inducing. Just ask me. <laughs> Excuse me. So we know this stuff is pollen, this time of year, oak pollen, but why does it get everywhere? I'm standing in front of the biological laboratory at UT Austin. Even the front steps of the building are dusted with green. I came here for answers. Do you want the answer for the freshman or for the after dinner party or the scientific answer? You're gonna cut that out. Professor Norma Fowler studies and teaches plant biology at UT. Give me the after dinner party answer to start with. Okay, plants have sex, they really do. So you're saying we're surrounded by tree sex? Sure. Acorns come from somewhere. (laughs) They come from sex. That was a new way of looking at things. Here's how it works. When humans want to reproduce, they choose a partner. Trees are a little less discriminating. Oak trees have both male flowers and female flowers. The male flowers, when you see piles of them on the ground this time of year, they're these little strands called catkins. What they do is they just throw the pollen, which is what the male flowers produce, throw it out into the wind. Then basically just hope for the best. And then the female flowers are very small. They look like little brushes and they just strain that pollen out of the wind. That's plant sex. It's also why the pollen gets everywhere. Trees need to produce tons of it if any is going to reach the female flowers. But an awful lot of the pollen doesn't get to the females. It lands on the sidewalks, it lands on the cars, it gets in our noses. It works well for the trees, but not always for the people that live near them. I am uh, I have allergies. <laughs> Wiping your nose. Yes, sorry. It's, uh, it's, it's a bad day today. It's the price we pay for our iconic oak trees. I'm properly drugged up with proper over-the-counter drugs like everybody else in Austin today. Full disclosure, I am too. Yes. So there you have it. Sex, drugs, and plant biology. Reporting on energy and the environment for State Impact Texas, I'm Mose Bouchelle, KUT News. Whoa! (laughs) 
This is Morning Edition on KUT 90.5. It is 744, broadcasting portion of our show live this morning from the Urban Collab at 12th and Chacon Streets in East Austin. I'm Jennifer Staten. Yesterday, we heard a story about the iconic Harlem Theater in East Austin, just down the block from where we are right now at 12th and Chacon Streets. The theater burned down in 1973, and it's been a vacant lot ever since. The company that now owns that lot owns nearly three dozen more properties on the street. So to tell this story, KUT's Audrey McGlinchey decided to take a walk. One of these days, these boots are going to walk a little bit. Oh, hey. I'm standing on the corner of East 12th and Curve Streets. I got on my walking shoes, really just a pretty beat up pair of Converse. Um, the first address on my list is right here, 913 East 12th Street. It's a really overgrown vacant lot. There's no buildings on it. There's a ton of trees. Well, I got about 34 more properties to go, so um, let's get to it. For Natasha Madison, unraveling the story meant starting with a question. Who owns all these empty lots? Madison's a member of the East 12th Street Merchants Association. It's a group organizing local businesses so they can have a say in the future of East 12th Street. Naturally, Madison wanted to know who owns pieces of it. So we did a little digging around and several we found out on our own um, were owned by Eureka. Eureka Holdings, a development company based in Grapevine outside of Dallas. Let's break this down. Madison figured this out in the same way I did, Travis County property records. Except the question I started with was, who owns the vacant lot at 1800 East 12th Street, where the Harlem Theater once stood? It's a company called 2013 Austin East 12th Street LP. My initial reaction was, well, that's a dumb name. It sounds like someone came up with it in a hurry. Long story short, because who wants to hear me talk about property records, the mailing address for that company? An address in Grapevine, Texas, which belongs to a development company called Eureka Holdings. And here's where Madison and I had to go deeper. We weren't inclined to look for multiple LLC names. It's not unusual for one company to hold property under various names, either because of certain tax benefits or in order to keep a low profile. And here's where things get entertaining. Some of these company names are, well, creative. 2101 East 12th Street, owned by Country Nelly CRLP. Twelve hundred Walnut Street, just off of East Twelfth, Austin Danger Powers LP. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Any South Park fans out there? Fifteen hundred East Twelfth Street is owned by Soto Sopa Salmon LP. There's a certain quality to the vibe and energy that is Soto Sopa. From the independent merchants and unique cafes. Ironically, that episode was poking fun at how gentrifying neighborhoods are marketed. All of these properties were purchased between 2013 and 2016. And the property value among them? Nearly $16 million. Raymond Medeiros sold Eureka one of their properties. We had a couple of beers and he told me not even listed. He'd just pay me whatever I wanted for it. What he got was $430,000 for an empty corner lot on East 12th Street. Medeiros grew up in the home that once stood at the corner of East 12th and Curve Streets. He told me he got a call from Eureka a couple of years ago asking to meet with him. A few beers later and the lot was sold to the company in 2015. Medeiros is now trying to buy a place in the country. I'm old. I need to, I need to slow down. Lockhart has a nice little slow something. 
Speaking of slow something, where's my walking self at? Hey there, so I just started back down the north side. I'm now at East 12th and Selena, right at the corner where the Harlem Theater once stood. Um, a lot of these properties so far owned by Eureka Holdings are homes. Um, there's a few businesses that lease from them, including a nonprofit, a barber shop, um, and a couple of vacant lots. So now I'm heading down the north side and we'll see what we've got on this side of the street. Back to you. Thanks, you. It all begs this question from Natasha Madison. I did find myself wondering, what was the plan? So I asked Eureka, what was the plan for their 36 properties on East 12th Street? Vice President Stephen Gibson didn't want to be recorded, but he did respond to an email I sent writing, quote, there is no specific plan at this time. Eureka's met with the 12th Street Merchants Association, and Madison says they've been amicable, but she knows nothing about what they've got in mind for the street. As for what she'd like to see, for that, we go to the neighborhood's past, a past where black residents were forced to live on this side of town, and so East 12th Street had to serve all their needs. African Americans weren't welcome outside of that community, so we did everything we needed to do within the confines of that community out of necessity. People in the district, they ate there, they went to school there, they shopped there, they buried their dead there. Everything that we did, we did within this community. A self-sufficient community is what Madison wants to see again, where going to East 12th Street meant grocery shopping, haircutting, and yes, even dead burying. A place where the young, the old, and the history move among one another. I asked Madison, is that something Eureka could build? She's hopeful. But I would be remiss to say that it's a business, you know? Real estate development is big money, big business. And it is what it is. And at the end of the day, what it's about is, you know, being able to show ROI on a spreadsheet. That's return on investment. And that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is altruism. What I'm talking about is compassion. And some of that will mean that in an opportunity to take the money or provide for the community, you have to provide for the community. In an email, I asked Gibson of Eureka why East 12th Street. He wrote, quote, location, availability, cost, zoning, permitting, commercial viability, financing. All these and more are factors that go into our decision making, end quote. Hey there, so I'm at the end of my journey. Uh, I'm now at the last property that Eureka Holdings owns on the north side of East 12th Street, 1000 East 12th Street. It's the end of a very long, vacant block. So it remains to be seen what the company is going to do with these properties, if they intend to buy up more of East 12th Street or develop what they have. Here on East 12th and Curve Street, I'm Audrey Lynchy for KET News. Broadcasting live from the Urban Collab in East Austin this morning as we wrap up our series looking at the neighborhood around 12th and Chacon Streets. You can see all the stories in our series at onmyblockatx.org. That's onmyblockatx.org. I'm Jennifer Staten. This is KUT 90.5. It's 751. Support comes from Austin Montessori School, offering a curriculum for children from 18 months to 15 years with the mission that education isn't teaching to the test, it's learning for life. More at austinmontessori.org.
Good morning. It's 8 o'clock. This is Morning Edition. The House today is set to vote on a Republican plan to replace the Affordable Care Act, but Republicans may not have the votes to help Donald Trump keep a key campaign promise. This is Austin's NPR station, KUT and KUT HD1 Austin. We are online at KUT.org. KUT is broadcasting portions of Morning Edition live today from the Urban Collab at 12th and Chacon Streets in East Austin. I'm Jennifer Staten. This hour, churches have long been a mainstay in East Austin, but new development has forced some to close their doors and relocate. How congregations are coping. And data show that while Austin's population has been booming, it's been the only fast-growing city in the country to see its African-American population drop. A closer look at why many African-Americans have left Austin. It's Thursday, March 23rd. A news update is next. This is Morning Edition on KUT 90.5, broadcasting portions of our show live today from the Urban Collab at 12th and Chacon Streets in East Austin. I'm Jennifer Staten. Churches have long been a mainstay in East Austin. Many houses of worship here have roots going back more than a century. But as new development rolls through the neighborhood, it's forced some churches to close their doors and relocate. KUT's Saida Hassan reports on how some congregations have adapted. In a few minutes, Pastor Clarence Jones has a meeting with a potential buyer. So if you notice this, you're coming in, you saw the for sale sign. He's been having a lot of these meetings over the past two years, ever since church leaders decided to put the Greater St. John Baptist Church up for sale. Hopefully it will sell and we can relocate. <laughs> uh, so that's what we're looking forward to at this time. The decision to sell didn't come lightly. Jones says the church has been here at the corner of Greenwood and Pennsylvania Avenues since 1945. But lately, he says the neighborhood feels more crowded. We would love to have been able to stay here, but as you look around, there's not any land uh, to use as parking or else to build a larger church on. Just across Pennsylvania Avenue, there's a new house being built. Another bright blue two-story home is for lease right across Greenwood. As more people move in, Jones says parking for church events has become scarce. They're considering new locations outside the city limits in Maynard. We felt that that would be a good place to relocate. Uh, lots of people moving in and uh, right now, the land is not quite expensive as it is here in Austin. In fact, Jones's own family recently left Austin for Manor, as has much of his congregation. His wife, Brenda Jones, says when she was growing up, the neighborhood around the church was predominantly African-American. She says, in a sense, the new diversity is a good thing and the church is open to everyone, but she hasn't felt welcomed by new residents. They don't want us to have the loud music, the worshiping hours, so... It's time that we should move. So it's really about the time, you know what I mean? It's time for the church to spread our wings. A couple miles east, another church has already made the move. I think the people were just so happy, number one, to be in a larger space. Renette Bledsoe is the senior warden at the St. James Episcopal Church. A few years ago, the church left its old home on MLK and moved to a spacious new facility on Weberville Road. Bledsoe says they made it a point to stay in East Austin. That's just simply the historical foundation of this church. And 
Sure, the church could have moved someplace else, but that is not what the people wanted. Bledsoe says the church follows a philosophy of, quote, radical hospitality, making a point to include people of all ages, ethnicities, and sexual orientations. St. James was originally founded in 1941 as a space for African Americans, who at the time weren't welcome at Austin's white Episcopal churches. Bledsoe says members actively recruited a more diverse congregation. People made an effort to go out and invite others to come and to worship. People that may not have looked like them, to invite them to come in and to worship, and then more people invited people to come in. Today, St. James hosts a weekly service in Spanish. Bledsoe says some members commute from as far away as Burnett or Taylor to come worship. Still, some say the loss of nearby residents makes it hard for East Austin churches to hold on to their roots. It's a huge blow to the community. Nefertiti Jackman is the executive director of Six Square, a nonprofit that works to preserve and celebrate African-American heritage in Central East Austin. The group's office sits down the street from a Methodist church on San Bernard Street, Jackman says on Sunday mornings, the neighborhood is transformed. There's cars parked everywhere. There's a vibrancy with people coming and going as they're worshiping. But you don't see that during the week, and it's really unfortunate. Jackman says she hopes to see creative uses for churches that are struggling to retain membership, uses that would keep them active throughout the week. She's hopeful about a new city program that would allow for houses of worship to rent out spaces to artists as a source of revenue. And I've long thought about that. How can we partner churches with other nonprofit organizations looking for space? And the churches need the revenue. Many of them need the revenue because they don't have a large congregation anymore. Back at the Greater St. John Baptist Church, Pastor Jones says he hasn't given much thought to what might happen to the property once it's sold. We really just want to get as much as we can for the property and then move on. And I know that most places they are putting up condos uh, and, uh, you know, apartment complexes. So we're thinking that that may be just what happens here. Jones says the thought of leaving East Austin is bittersweet, but he thinks wherever the church moves, his congregation will follow. Saida Hassan, KUT News. Broadcasting live from 12th and Chacone at the Urban Collab in East Austin this morning as we wrap up our On My Block project. You can find all the stories in our series at onmyblockatx.org. That's onmyblockatx.org. I'm Jennifer Staten. This is KUT 90.5. We're coming up on 829. This is Morning Edition on KUT 90.5, broadcasting portions of our show live today from the Urban Collab at 12th and Chacon Streets in East Austin. I'm Jennifer Staten. A few years ago, in 2014, data came out about Austin's African-American population. Those numbers were pretty revealing and distressing. Here's a recap. While the city's overall population had exploded over the past decades, Austin's African-American population declined over the past 20 years. Looking specifically at 2000 to 2010, African-Americans were the only racial group in Austin that saw a drop in numbers. 
Austin was also the only fast-growing city in the country that had a decrease in its African-American population during that stretch. Dr. Eric Tang is an associate professor at the Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis at UT Austin. After analyzing that data a few years back, Tang wanted to look more closely at why African-Americans were leaving Austin, specifically East Austin. To find out, he went straight to the source. I talked with Eric Tang recently about this new research. We uh, realized that many of the folks who had moved out of the city limits to outlying suburban areas return on Sundays for church. And this gave us an opportunity to interview them after church services. We interviewed about 100 former residents of Austin who return on Sundays and found that the vast majority of them felt that they had moved not out of choice, but because they felt compelled to move due to affordability, especially housing affordability. How then did people rate their quality of life after leaving? By and large, our respondents said that their quality of life decreased. Their quality of life, especially in the eastern reaches of the city, is inferior to, um, to what they experienced when they lived in the urban core. So the defining feature of gentrification isn't so much that neighborhoods turn over and you know, there are new populations with higher incomes that move in. It's the displacement of long-standing residents from the urban core to areas where they're more vulnerable. What we saw out in the east, the eastern reaches of the city, proved this out, that the majority of people who move there said that they have less access to supermarkets, to healthcare centers, that they have poorer transportation options, and on the whole, their quality of life suffered. Did that surprise you at all? It didn't surprise me. Um, What surprised me more than anything was the fact that many of them also moved, not only for reasons of affordability, but because they also felt that the AISD um, schools were not giving their children a fair shake. It surprised me to see how many parents who moved to um, the Del Valley system or the Elgin system felt that their, their children were getting a fair shake out east. The reason they felt that way was because the schools out there were far less segregated. Did respondents say anything about cultural factor or you could also call it systemic factors as reasons for leaving? I mean, I'm thinking of interactions, say, between police and residents, for example. Was that cited very often? Yes. Many respondents felt that Austin was not a welcoming city for African-Americans. And that was the third leading reason that respondents gave for why they moved out and why many of them won't return. They felt that Austin, despite its progressive reputation, despite its reputation as a tolerant city, as a multicultural city, was um, by and large hostile to African-Americans. In addition to that, the black public sphere in Austin, which used to be on the east side, 12th Street, 11th Street, has over the past two or three decades been decimated um, owing to gentrification, but also before that, urban renewal efforts. There isn't this, this draw, this, this, this magnet, this nucleus here in East Austin that keeps many residents here, African-American residents, that is, that continues to draw them back to the urban core. I think you asked respondents if they would ever come back to Austin. What did they tell you when you asked them, you know, would you ever come back? A majority of respondents said that they would come back if 
housing were more affordable if they could. And this did surprise us, especially coming from respondents who moved north to Pflugerville and Round Rock, where their amenities are pretty good and where their quality of life on the whole is, is satisfactory. And so this points to this ineluctable sense of rootedness that many African-American Austinites have to their old communities. Uh, that sense of community and solidarity and rootedness that just can't be replaced once you move somewhere else. So what are the bigger picture long-term implications when a group of people, such as the folks you spoke to, who moved out not by choice, they're in their new place, life is not necessarily greater than it was before, they've still got a foot in their old home. What does that do to a group of people? Well, it does fragment a community. It does lead to a sense of historical and cultural loss. At the same time, there are acts of resilience on the part of community members who try to reestablish these connections in places like Pflugerville. But what it does long term is it, I think, erases uh, the legacy of African-Americans here in the city. And it overlooks the importance of this community historically uh, to, to Austin. And I think what it should flag for all of us is the need to deal with the affordability crisis in Austin writ large. Because what happened to the African-American population with respect to displacement and out-migration is on the one hand singular because it so it disproportionately impacted them, but not unique. Meaning that what happened to them is a bellwether for the rest of the city. Every community in some measure is being affected by the affordability crisis that drove so many African-Americans out of the city. That's Dr. Eric Tang from UT Austin's Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis. As we heard, many people have left this part of East Austin, some by choice. Many, though, didn't have a choice. So what happens if you come back after a long and mandatory absence? KUT's Mose Bouchel has that story. This is a story about two guys and how a neighborhood shaped their lives. Testing. This is the first time I've ever used this mic, so you gotta forgive me. That's all right. Get it together. This is Andreas Mueller. I can honestly say this is the first time I've ever been recorded. Oh, yeah? Okay. Openly recorded. (laughs) And this is Matthew Malcolm Kleiman. I'm born in Brackenridge Hospital in 1979. They grew up together on the east side. Tell me a little bit about your family. Uh, Both my parents are radical activists. hippies (laughs) hippies <laughs> and my mother knew his mother from going to uh, UT from the 70s so what's a good soundtrack for their childhood I'm um, told by my parents the first record I ever heard was Jimi Hendrix Experience this is how they remember it man we would just let kids run around the neighborhood if we seen a trampoline in your backyard we would come knock on your door ask you can we jump on the trampoline it was a family atmosphere Old people used to sit on their porches and watch us and yelling at us, you know, while we were running through their yards, get off my grass. There were hard parts, too. Money was tight. Andreas's mom was sick with lupus. He started caring for her, even driving her around when he was just a kid. Matthew's parents often weren't around, so they say the neighborhood helped raise them. This is how Matt describes the east side back in the 80s. We were not poor. We were working class people. We were proud working class people. We were people that had everything in our 
communities and our neighborhoods that we needed. We had mom and pop grocery stores, Roy Lee's on Mainer Road. Okay, guess what? Black owned, mom and pop. They were all over the east side. You know, we never felt welcome on West Austin, which is why we didn't go there. But uh, we were always at home on the east side. I think a lot of people that listen to whatever story comes out of this will probably imagine that you're a black guy. Maybe. Here I'm talking to Matt. A lot of people have thought that my entire life, though, especially just um, just hearing my voice. <laughs> it wasn't Matt. That's white boy Matt. That's my name. White boy Matt. <laughs> yeah. My oldest son, whenever he was about two or three, called him white boy Matt. We all snapped on him. You don't get to call him white boy Matt. You only call him Matt or Uncle Matt. But I think at that time, that's something that brought us together, too. Yeah. I have to say, like, you know, both of us, for different reasons, weren't really even accepted in our own communities. Matthew, because he was a white guy who identified with black culture. Andreas, because he was mixed race. His dad is African-American. His mom, a white East German immigrant. Came over here by herself and was never married and ended up having, you know, a mixed child and, you know, an immigrant with a minority child, you know, growing up in Texas, you know, was, was something different. That might have been one of our early we're bonding always points, outcasts. Not, not ever knowing. It, and a lot of our other friends were outcasts yeah. in different ways, too, yeah. you know. Things got harder, as they usually do, when the guys became teenagers. But it was more than just the usual challenges. Andreas's mom got sicker. Matt's parents divorced. This was in the early 90s. They say the neighborhood was changing, too. Gangs and violence kind of started to have this place in East Austin and he came into my life. Now here, they want to be careful. On one hand, they feel like the East Side got a bad rap when it came to crime. Don't let it be said that, no, you know, we were, we were like the normal. The whole East Side no, sound like, not you know, at all. No, because it was families over there. Yeah. You know, it yeah, wasn't people trying to crack houses kids, right? on every block. Yeah. It was families over there. But on the other hand, they say drug dealing became part of their reality. Everybody's What's this? This is criminal element, man. This is... Texas music, Houston. Yeah, Texas music. But, I mean, a lot of this music we used to listen to reflected of what we were, in, our environment was. You know, we, you know, you you relate to what you see, what you live. So here's what they saw. Crack hits the street in the 80s. Police, who seem to turn a blind eye to drug use in white communities, start focusing on drug enforcement on the east side. You know, there's lawyers that live on the west side that snort up tons of cocaine, you know what I mean? They think some of that law enforcement created more chaos than it prevented. Older men were incarcerated. Boys like Matthew and Andreas started taking their place. That's, that was the best thing you could give me, knowing that my mom's finna die. Your best info that you can give me that I can take with me all 50 states in America to cook crack. And I can get paid regardless what slum, where I live at. So that was, that's, that was the, the, the teachings of survival. Eventually, both friends did time in prison. When Andreas got out in the early 2000s, he could hardly recognize the East Austin he returned to. Rents were up, a lot of the old businesses were gone, and there were a lot more white people around. You know, something I seen when I first got out of prison was, you know, it tripped me out. I caught a white woman walking down 12th Street at 3 o'clock in the morning, even though what am I doing at 3 in the morning? And I was like, I've never seen this. And the entire time, I'm 23, finna be 24 years old, and I've never seen this. Matt noticed it too. You're in your jogging shoes and your yoga pants walking up 12th Street, man. Are you kidding me? But for him, it played a little differently. Now, when I go to the east side, 
I'm just that white guy on the east side. Yeah, you're just that white guy that came into my neighborhood that bought a house here. A lot of the old neighbors were gone too, and Andreas's mom had passed away. He was in prison and couldn't keep up on tax payments for her house. So when he got out, he lost that too. And that was over 10 years ago. But Andreas stayed in town, and Matthew did too. They just ended up moving to a different part of it. It was a complete coincidence, but now they live just a few blocks away from each other, down the street from a local school on the south side. Andreas has a wife and kids. When he's not working, he volunteers coaching youth sports. I want to give back because I know how easy it is to get in trouble and not get out. Matt says he's focused on self-improvement, not drinking, not smoking. I'm boring, man. Okay. You know, I'm a trades person. I just work uh, with my hands, you know, carpentry, masonry. I like to do some music and stuff for fun. I walk my dogs. That's about yeah, the most you're going to catch me. to my practices. Yeah. <laughs> when they get together, they talk about the old neighborhood. They say it won't go back to the way they remember it as kids. The east side is not going to ever be the east side again, and it's because people don't want the east side. And they wonder if the crime they got caught up in somehow ended up contributing to the gentrification that came after. That violence created this uh, excuse, I think, to say, we have to go into this community and we have to fix, fix it for them. But they, but they, were, they were coming from an outside position. What really could fix it? They say it, it all comes down to money. Loans for family-owned businesses, wages that keep up with the cost of living, and funding for improved public schools. For Andres and Matthew, these solutions seem obvious. They just don't seem to get done. So the two friends focus on building a new community in a different part of town. Rose Bouchel, KAT News. Hearing stories from the East Austin neighborhood around 12th and Chacon Streets all this morning. We're coming to you live from the Urban Collab at 12th and Chacon. You can find all the stories in our On My Block series at onmyblockatx.org. That's onmyblockatx.org. I'm Jennifer Staten. This is KUT 90.5. We're coming up on 9 o'clock. It's now 9.22, and this is Morning Edition on KUT 90.5. I'm Jennifer Staten. We are broadcasting live this morning from the Urban Collab at the corner of 12th and Chacon Streets in East Austin. We're wrapping up our On My Block series, looking at the neighborhood and the changes it's undergone. We're hearing from many people this morning who have a stake in this neighborhood, but we also want to listen back to a few of the voices we've heard over the past six months of this project. University of Texas undergraduate school had just integrated, so you were pressing, everybody's pressing for that. But then in the nightclub scene, and these, of course, different folks, but you're getting integration in the opposite direction, and you're just kind of messing up your space. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a difficult time to, to maneuver through, you know, for a lot of people because they don't know exactly what shape to get in. You know, am I supposed to be for? for this, uh, this is not working for me in this case of this nightclub, you know. This is the only open club. When a whole block was dead, this place always was open. So half of the black community, well, a whole black community actually sat in the same backyard where we sitting at right now and play dominoes and they'd just be here all day and this was their spot. But as, as I moved in and life moved in and uh, the community changed, I probably see 50 people a week and come and be like, hey man, what happened to Club 40? You know, be like, man, I've been having this place two years. Where, where the people at? Man, I don't know. 
the high school here uh, was the catalyst. Now, catalyst is a bonding agent. When you put all the chemicals together, there's one particular chemical that bonds all the molecules and control and everything. That's what this school was. It was a bonding agent for the community. Now, think about, like I said, in chemistry, you don't have a catalyst, then everything just it doesn't work. And that's what the school was. It was more than just a school. Sense of place and trying to find a sense of home in Austin and in Travis County um, has always been such a struggle for African Americans here because it seems like once you put down roots, you have to move. It's pretty ironic that in the early 1900s, you tell me where to live. Now I feel like they're telling me I can't go anywhere else because they won't allow me to sell my house for uh, its actual value. Or let me say they made me jump through hoops to sell my house which also cut me out of a couple of bucks that I could have used or that I should have been entitled to. We're definitely concerned as far as um, just watching the changes happening in this neighborhood, not just this 12th and Chacon, but the neighborhood as a whole, is the rent prices and really being concerned about being able to continue to provide affordable integrative medicine to everybody who needs it when we're kind of looking down the barrel at at our own rent going up at our next lease cycle. You're, you're in your jogging shoes and your yoga pants walking up 12th Street, man. Are you kidding me? You know, um, no. You know, I, 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 hate is a strong word, but I, I don't want you to like me. I don't like you. Uh, there's nothing you can tell me about yourself, uh, that, that you're cool, that you're an artist, that you're poor. Not even being a poor white person is good enough, you know? If you think I'm plain, baby, things ain't like they seem. I mean, he represents the change by us, like, by us working together, you know what I mean? It's like... A change to show that, you know, black and white can't get along, you know, but like I say, you know, I ain't never had that prejudice bone in my body, so, you know, you get along with me, I get along with you, you know, that's just me. The voices of just a few of the people we've heard from in our On My Block series. You can find all of the stories at onmyblockatx.org. That's onmyblockatx.org. Now, yesterday we heard a story about the iconic Harlem Theater in East Austin, just down the block from where we are right now at 12th and Chacon Streets. The theater burned down in 1973, and it's been a vacant lot ever since. The company that now owns that lot owns nearly three dozen more properties on the street. So to tell this story, KUT's Audrey McGlinchey decided to take a walk. One of these days, these boots are going to walk a little I'm standing on the corner of East 12th and Curve Streets. I got on my walking shoes, really just a pretty beat up pair of Converse. Um, the first address on my list is right here, 913 East 12th Street. It's a really overgrown vacant lot. There's no buildings on it. There's a ton of trees. Well, I got about 34 more properties to go, so um, let's get to it. For Natasha Madison, unraveling the story meant starting with a question. Who owns all these empty lots? 
Madison's a member of the East 12th Street Merchants Association. It's a group organizing local businesses so they can have a say in the future of East 12th Street. Naturally, Madison wanted to know who owns pieces of it. So we did a little digging around and several we found out on our own um, were owned by Eureka. Eureka Holdings, a development company based in Grapevine outside of Dallas. Let's break this down. Madison figured this out in the same way I did, Travis County property records. Except the question I started with was, who owns the vacant lot at 1800 East 12th Street, where the Harlem Theater once stood? It's a company called 2013 Austin East 12th Street LP. My initial reaction was, well, that's a dumb name. It sounds like someone came up with it in a hurry. Long story short, because who wants to hear me talk about property records, the mailing address for that company? An address in Grapevine, Texas, which belongs to a development company called Eureka Holdings. And here's where Madison and I had to go deeper. We weren't inclined to look for multiple LLC names. It's not unusual for one company to hold property under various names, either because of certain tax benefits or in order to keep a low profile. And here's where things get entertaining. Some of these company names are, well, creative. 2101 East 12th Street, owned by Country Nelly CRLP. Twelve hundred Walnut Street, just off of East Twelfth, Austin Danger Powers LP. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Any South Park fans out there? Fifteen hundred East Twelfth Street is owned by Soto Sopa Salmon LP. There's a certain quality to the vibe and energy that is Soto Sopa. From the independent merchants and unique cafes. Ironically, that episode was poking fun at how gentrifying neighborhoods are marketed. All of these properties were purchased between 2013 and 2016. And the property value among them? Nearly $16 million. Raymond Medeiros sold Eureka one of their properties. We had a couple of beers and he told me not even listed. He'd just pay me whatever I wanted for it. What he got was $430,000 for an empty corner lot on East 12th Street. Medeiros grew up in the home that once stood at the corner of East 12th and Curve Streets. He told me he got a call from Eureka a couple of years ago asking to meet with him. A few beers later and the lot was sold to the company in 2015. Medeiros is now trying to buy a place in the country. I'm old. I need to, I need to slow down. Lockhart has a nice little slow something. Speaking of slow something, where's my walking self at? Hey there, so I just started back down the north side. I'm now at East 12th and Selena, right at the corner where the Harlem Theater once stood. Um, a lot of these properties so far owned by Eureka Holdings are homes. Um, there's a few businesses that lease from them, including a nonprofit, a barber shop, um, and a couple of vacant lots. So now I'm heading down the north side and we'll see what we've got on the side of the street. Back to you. Thanks, you. It all begs this question from Natasha Madison. I did find myself wondering, what was the plan? So I asked Eureka, what was the plan for their 36 properties on East 12th Street? Vice President Stephen Gibson didn't want to be recorded, but he did respond to an email I sent writing, quote, there is no specific plan at this time. I also asked Gibson of Eureka, why East 12th Street? He wrote, quote, location, availability, cost, zoning, permitting, commercial viability, financing. All these and more are factors that go into our decision making, end quote. 
Hey there. So I'm at the end of my journey. Uh, I'm now at the last property that Eureka Holdings owns on the north side of East 12th Street, 1000 East 12th Street. It's the end of a very long, vacant block. Still remains to be seen what the company is going to do with these properties if they intend to buy up more of East 12th Street or develop what they have. Here on East 12th and Curve Street, I'm Audrey Malinchi for KTVs. So we've just been hearing about current property ownership and development in East Austin, but but what about history? How have the history and culture of East Austin and the city's African-American population been preserved? To find out more about that, we're going to talk with LaToya Devazan. She's the African-American community archivist at the Austin History Center, and she's joining us live this morning. Thanks so much for being here, LaToya. Thank you for having me. So first of all, I want to ask, uh, give us your uh, your job description at the History Center. What is it that you do there exactly? So is the African American community archivist, I collect, preserve, and make available materials related to African Americans in Travis County. So what kind of materials are in the archives? What, what do you have? We have photos, videos, scrapbooks, family Bibles, baby shoes, all kinds of a collection of ephemera at the History Center. <laughs> what would you say is the most um, unusual or interesting item that you have in the archives? Um, one of my favorite unique pieces is this um, presidential campaign button, Jesse Jackson for president in the 80s. And um, we have some women's um, women's rights. We have some women's rights buttons as well from like um, the 70s and like so second wave feminism sort of things as well. So in general, what kind of shape would you say the archives are in? What, what's the, the quality and quantity of materials that you have? We have several floors of materials. So the History Center, when you come in, we just have one main floor that's open to the public. But we also have two floors above and a floor below that um, also stores archival materials. Right now, most of the archival materials are in pretty decent shape. Sometimes when we get things, they might come in um, in shambles. It just depends on the, um, the, I guess, the state they're in when people bring them to us. And so at that point, we try to make efforts to preserve those to preserve the integrity of the information that's in whatever material we receive. So I imagine your job is an especially interesting one to have right now because we've been hearing about demographic shifts in the city of Austin, the out-migration of the African-American population. So how do you go about boosting and adding to the archives when population, a lot of the source material for that is exiting? Well, I do make house calls. So sometimes if you call us, we can come out to you. Um, you'll see us driving around. Um, all of the community archivists, um, we also have um, th two other archivists besides me, one who works with the Asian American community and another archivist who works with the Mexican and Latinx communities here in Travis County. And we all drive out to collect materials because as our population disperses, specifically mine, we're shrinking at a rapid rate every day. I have to go further and further out to collect materials on African-Americans in Travis County. And do you have any concerns about being able to sort of keep up a steady stream of those items when when this population is leaving? Yes, as a matter of fact, this is a bad joke, but before I took this, this position, I asked, I was like, all the black people are leaving Austin. Will I have a job if I move here? Like, is it going to be okay? <laughs> like, will I be okay? Is there job security in this? But um, I found that um, we do, there's still a lot of rich history here. And a colleague of mine, um, Creola Burns, actually just said this yesterday. She said, we're displaced but not replaced and so I just that's a great model to kind of consider as we go about this job just because the population shifting doesn't mean that the richness of the history does not still live here 
So tell people if they have items that they, they want to contribute, what, what do they need to do? Give me a call. You can email me. Um, my phone number is 512-974-7390. I'm putting it out there. And um, you can go to the Austin History Center's website. I have a hard last name to spell um, to find me directly and email me. LaToya Devazon is the African-American community archivist at the Austin, Austin History Center. We thank you so much for joining us, LaToya. Thank you for having me. We are broadcasting live this morning from Urban Collab at 12th and Chacon in East Austin. It's part of our On My Block series. We are wrapping up that series with this broadcast. And at the beginning of our series back in October, we told the story of Anderson High School, a beacon of the black community in East Austin until its forced closure in 1971 as part of desegregation. But Anderson wasn't the only neighborhood school to close. Keeling Junior High School did too. It was reopened in the mid-1980s as a neighborhood school with a magnet program. The tensions of the past still linger in the school's hallways. And as KUT's Kate McGee reports, the new principal there is trying to correct some of those mistakes of the past. Kenesha Coburn stands in the middle of the hallway in Keeling Middle School. Some students run by her. Coburn stops them, makes them go back to where they started, and walk. They don't make eye contact with me when they're sprinting. They're like, she, she didn't see me, she did Coburn is in her second year as principal of Keeling Middle School, but she knows many of the students by name and jokes with them. Hey, Brajon, hey, Glasgow. Y'all look tired. Food coma? Keeling has two programs in the cafeteria, the Magna program, which accepts students from across the district, and the neighborhood school known as the Academy program. One of the first things Coburn noticed was the racial division. Most of the students in the Magna program are white or Asian, and most of the students in the Academy program are black or brown. When you have an advanced academic program and the perception is that it only welcomes white and Asian students, then the message, intentional or not, to black and brown kids is, if that's what it looks like to be advanced academic, then obviously kids like me aren't. The school is academically successful, but that success isn't equal among students. Nearly all white students pass the state standardized tests. Those numbers are much lower for African-American and Hispanic students. But Coburn says that achievement gap doesn't mean black and brown students are intellectually inferior. Many of them bring issues to school that makes it more difficult to learn. I have students who the data that you see on paper for them is a function of mental health issues, um, family challenges that you can't learn yet because there are these big things that you're dealing with that are getting in the way. Coburn says the racial divide in the school today is also a reminder of Keeling's history. The mostly black school was closed in the 1970s because of forced desegregation. You had to leave your community and go across town and your school's name went. Like there's a whole lot of just nasty, deep, deep history of loss, whether or not it was intended to be that way. That's the feeling. A lot of her job is figuring out ways to get underrepresented students to realize their potential and open doors to success. And then once you start opening them and you see students or families not walk through, you realize that it's no longer just about the door being open, but the history being so pervasive that I don't feel like I'm going to be comfortable when I walk in, so I'm not going to. Coburn says she often pushes students into uncomfortable situations like harder classes, after school clubs or sports. 
This year, Keeling also changed its magnet admissions process, so half of the students are accepted based on their zip code. We've always said we want all kids, but we also operated a an admission system that didn't necessarily recognize kids from all over the city. Now, both Magnet and Academy students can take the same elective classes, and they have advisory period together. Coburn also implemented training for teachers about microaggressions. Many of the changes are driven by teachers, who she says took it upon themselves to examine the school's history and suggest changes to improve the school for all students. Our teachers are much more capable of and ready to collaborate across all of the lines that we have drawn in the sand. They didn't draw them. Um, They've been drawn by other people and they've been forced to live within them. Now, teachers can teach classes in the Magnet program and the Academy program, too. Next fall, Coburn expects the new sixth grade class in the Magnet program to look a lot more diverse. She hopes that visible change will be the start of a new chapter in Keeling's history. Kate McGee, KUT News. The Austin Independent School District now is dealing with declining enrollments and decisions about facilities and campuses. Many are wondering if students district-wide are getting the same quality of education. We are joined live this morning by Austin School Board member Ted Gordon, representing District 1 in East and Northeast Austin. Thanks for joining us live this morning. My pleasure to be here. So I want to talk first of all about the district commissioned and has conducted uh, self-assessment about equity and One of the at least preliminary findings was that there are definitely gaps in achievement, gaps in access, especially for African-American students and economically disadvantaged students. So I want to talk, first of all, about about that assessment and where things stand with that. All right. Well, that's, you know, a good question. Uh, I don't think that there has been a final uh, result from the equity self-assessment. It's something the district has been involved in for over two years now, uh, and I yet have to have uh, seen a final result from that. I think the district has some preliminary results that they're attempting to to work on, but you know, one of my questions is, well, where are the final results of the equity self-assessment? You're absolutely right that there, you know, we know even without the equity self-assessment that there are enormous. Uh, achievement gaps between black and and other kids in in our schools. And those are things that the district definitely needs to to confront. All right. So first of all, we know that there are gaps there, assessment or no assessment finished Mm -hmm. yet. What does that gap look like and feel like for students on a day in and day out basis? How is that how is that impacting them? Well, I, I think on a day to day basis, uh, those students <clears throat> may not uh, feel those uh, gaps directly, at least in part because our schools are so segregated. So, you know, on the east side of, of I-35 and uh, the, the district that I represent, uh, these are schools that are in general uh, over 90 percent uh, lower socioeconomic status and, and black and brown. So, uh, you know, you're in schools where everybody is achieving more or less at the same level, but the, the achievement gaps really happen between east and west in this town, not, you know, within the schools themselves. So students all across the district aren't getting an equal shake. Well, they just don't seem to be. Uh, you were talking in a, a previous segment, I think, uh, of this about the fact that black folks seem to be uh, leaving Austin. I think one of the reasons why black folks have left Austin, uh, in addition to the economic realities, is that schools have not, uh, AISD schools have not done what they're supposed to do in relation to black kids. And so black families looking for decent schooling for their kids 
go elsewhere. Well, the research that that was done, the data from a few years ago, shows that that was actually the number two reason why African Americans left Austin was in search of better schools. Better schools, absolutely. Because historically, schools on the east side have not been given the kinds of resources or the kind of attention that schools elsewhere in town have been given. So what does is, what is the district do? Well, what does the district do? I think what the district do, does is it needs to pay more attention to the east side. <clears throat> I think that this administration, school administration, and certainly uh, myself on the board are trying to uh, pay more attention to what's going on in these schools. I think a previous administration of AISD was le- actually uh, set on letting charter schools take over the problem of east side schools. Uh, I think that's no longer the policy, and I think now what we need to do is to, to pay attention to doing school by school, principal by principal, what's necessary to make these schools work and, and allow these schools to give the, the kind of quality education to black and brown kids, the black and brown kids that we all deserve. Is there funding for that? How do you pay for that? Is there for funding for that? that? Well, that's a problem. Uh, you know, the state in general, well, this country in general does not spend enough money on education, but this state in particular uh, is is ridiculous in terms of, you know, one of the wealthiest states in, in, the, in the nation is, you know, one of the, uh, on the sort of the tail end of school funding. And so the school funding model here is is criminal, if you ask me. So what one of the things that has to happen is we need to be able to provide more funding for these for public schools in general. We certainly don't need to be diverting it off into funding charter schools and private schools and things like that. Uh, and I think in Austin in particular, we need to be able to keep more of the money that we uh, take from taxes in Austin to be able to put into schools, particularly schools on the east side of I-35. So in your opinion, what what would success look like here? You know, if we chatted again in two years or three years or five years, what would cause you to say, you know what, there was a problem, we fixed it, we got it right? I think there's a number of things that, that you can look to for success. One is, uh, you know, I'm not a big uh, proponent of standardized testing. But I think there is a problem when you see kids in one area of town doing really well on standardized tests and kids in another area of town not doing well. So one thing would just be, you know, the most simple thing is some kind of reduction in the achievement gap on standardized tests uh, for different kinds of town. But I think the other thing is, I think we would be successful if kids, for example, in District 1 is an increasingly integrated community, for better or for worse. uh, You know, we're no longer all black and we're certainly not, you know, all Latino. It's an integrated community. One of the things that would be an indication of success is if our schools uh, represented the diversity of the community itself. If local folks, if families were sending their kids to our schools, that would be that would be success. Austin School Board Member Ted Gordon represents District 1 in East and Northeast Austin. Thanks for joining us, Ted, this morning. Uh, you didn't give me enough time, but you're more than welcome. <laughs> time is always short. We are broadcasting live from Urban Collab and 12th at Chacon Streets in East Austin. It is 947. This is KUT 90.5. This is KUT 90.5. We are broadcasting Morning Edition live today from the Urban Collab at 12th and Chacon Streets in East Austin. I'm Jennifer Staten. We're coming up on 948. Twelve years ago, the city of Austin launched an African-American quality of life initiative to try and improve the standard of living, quality of life for African-Americans in the city. One of the efforts that emerged from conversations around that initiative was Six Square, Austin's Black Cultural District. The organization says it is, quote, dedicated 
dedicated to celebrating the African-American heritage of Central East Austin and preserving cultural assets in the district through historical interpretation, promotion of cultural and artistic events, and social, cultural, and economic development. Nefertiti Jackman is a Six Square Executive Director. She's joining us live this morning. Thanks so much for being here, Nefertiti. Thank you very much, Jennifer, for having me. So I want to make sure I describe the mission of Six Square correctly. Did I leave anything out? That's a lot to manage. It is a lot. The one piece that I really want to highlight and emphasize, in addition to preserving the rich cultural heritage, we do want to emphasize that uh, additionally, we reanimate public spaces. So that's one of the things we do with uh, art exhibits, uh, which one was recently highlighted on NPR with the East Austin churches, uh, musical explorations, and we do a number of things to just sort of show that the culture is still alive and thriving in Central East Austin. So are you primarily trying to interest people who are in the neighborhood already and sort of absorbing the culture and experiencing the culture? Are you trying to get folks from all over the city to come? Well, we're trying to get people from all over the nation. So I would say both. Uh, One of the things, one of the art exhibit that we recently had, we had people who were primarily new to the area. We did not expect that, but that's what it had turned out. Uh, And it was a great dynamic conversation that ensued after everyone had a chance to look at the art and we had a very good conversation on gentrification now that wasn't planned but that's what happened and part of our thing is to engage old and new residents and so that was an opportunity that that took place and uh, additionally we want to serve as a model we are the first african-american cultural heritage district in texas in the state of texas but there are people from other places in the nation who are calling to find out what are we doing and how are we doing it is it difficult to to sort of bridge that gap from old established to new? Or are those conversations tough? Uh, the conversations, I want to say they're easy, but they are a little tough. Uh, I was uh, at the Texas History Center on yesterday with LaToya and other members of the community. And one of the things that I wanted to emphasize, because some people are focusing, and I, I get the focus on people who are native to Austin. But what I shared with the group is we want to make sure that we expand that narrative that so that it connects to pe- people on multiple levels. And by ext- expanding it and understanding that there's uh, a number of intersections with people, the story of what's taking place in Central East Austin and the African-American community is the same story that has happened in black communities, or especially urban centers across the nation. So do you feel there's a specific challenge for you right now, those we've been talking about this morning and in past reporting, of course, with Austin's population shifting, out-migration of the African-American population? How does that impact your efforts and the work of Six Square? Right. Um, it impacts it greatly, I would say. Um, something like this taking place in Houston would be easy, if you will, uh, because there's a very large African-American population in in Houston. And it's also concentrated in certain areas. Whereas in Austin, especially Central East Austin, the, the population is dispersed. So although we have our work cut out in reaching out to people who have left Central East Austin, reaching them in Round Rock and Pflugerville and the other areas where they have moved to. So we still get a lot of people 
people know about us, but so many people come to the space and they're like, wow, we never even knew this existed. But the good thing is, I will say there are many organizations who are partnering, working together. So there, um, the work is great with a number of organizations right in this area. And just as we wrap up briefly, I know economic development is also a slice of Six Squares work. Can you talk a little bit about, about that part of the organization? Well, yes, I will talk briefly on that. I was actually, um, there was a guest this morning who was here. He's gone now and he's going to work with us to sort of develop that economic component uh, more. But one of the things that we have done uh, with through our art exhibits, that's primarily been the focus. Uh, we support artists in their work. They get to uh, expose their works and their talents to other people. They buy their artwork. And then also with the receptions that we host, we select local caterers. And so that's um, something that generates revenue to people who are right here in uh, Central Austin. And we are working to um, build a newsletter, which I was just talking about that this morning, to highlight the various businesses. And I just started working with Natasha, who I believe will be on next um, with the Merchants Association here um, on 12th Street. Now, for T.D. Jackman is Six Squares Executive Director. Thank you for joining us live this morning. Thank you. We are here at Urban Collab at 12th and Chacon Streets, and Nefertiti's exactly right. We're now going to talk with Natasha Madison. She is with the East 12th Street Merchants Association. Natasha, thank you for joining us this thank morning. Thank you for having me. So first of all, I want to hear, you're a businesswoman. What is your business? What what do you do? Um, I do a couple things, but I got started here because of my business that's East Austin Advocates, and what we do basically is help people to mitigate shortages of all the kinds, and you can imagine there are several in this area, so economic shortages, food, housing, etc. So tell us a little bit about the East 12th Street Merchants Association. Why was it formed? How did it come to be? Um, so we were very fortunate in that um, we were part of the pilot program. So the City of Austin's Economic Development Department, they launched an initiative called Soli Austin. Soli Austin launched with three um, neighborhoods to be a part of their pilot program for developing merchants associations. There was Red River, Mainer Road, and East 12th Street. And um, tell me a little bit about sort of who, who all is in the group. Are these sure. established businesses, new businesses? I'm imagining it's a mix of It is a everybody. mix, and it changes every day. So, you know, the it, I think uh, Nefertiti sort of touched on it, right? It's a really nuanced area, and you have to be very sort of hyper aware of the history of East 12th Street in order to move forward. Um, so there are businesses that have been in this district for 40 years as a part of the Merchants Association. And then there's me, you know, my business has only been here for a year. Um, and then there's some people sort of in between like ancillary supporters who don't have businesses in the district, but are committed to seeing the development of East 12th Street go in a way that's hyper considerate. So how do you how do you manage those differing histories and imagine differing needs and sort of differing maybe attitudes or thoughts about the changes going on in the neighborhood. How do you, how do you get everybody under the tent together? <laughs> That's a good question. And I'll tell you what, I won't, um, I won't misrepresent it and say that we are all entirely under the tent so far, but we are definitely making moves towards getting everybody under the tent. And the people that have sort of given themselves over to the desire to um, be a unified collective force have decided that whatever, you know, thing that they had that might have been an impediment to their desire to be a part of this is not worth it in comparison to what we can do as an organization. So describe a little more about the association's relationship with the city. Is, sure. 
Is, is this a source of resources for you all coming from the city? What's the relationship there? Um, it's, it's multi-tiered. And I'll say that because we are a part of a pilot program, I think there's a lot that's going on with Red River, Main Road, East 12th Street that won't necessarily happen with future merchants associations. So there has been some support in the way of financial support for legal fees, et cetera. So as we are becoming formed and official um, merchants Association. There's some requirements about management classes, how, understanding the relevance of a board and how to select them, etc. So there has been some financial assistance, but primarily it's been, you know, a formation um, specific guidance. Mm-hmm. Are you finding, would you say that Central East Austin and East Austin, and I guess sort of the Austin business climate in general, is Austin a business-friendly city? Absolutely. I mean, look at all the data. Austin is the friendliest business city, according to all the data. Um, One of the problems we find on this street, though, is that there are a lot of businesses that either are not thriving currently um, and or won't moving forward because there's not enough uh, very specific attention being paid to business development here. So what kind of attention then here does this neighborhood need? Oh, man, if I gave it three things, I would say facade improvements. The appearance of a thing, you know, really has a lot of influence as to whether or not a a person patronizes it. So, uh, like, you spoke about the juxtaposition. So we have a half a million dollar house next door to an 800 square foot pier and beam house where the family's fourth generation, they've been there for 50 years. These folks don't shop at the same places, right? And so we're trying to encourage some of the people in the district to keep their money on East 12th Street but there's not much for them to buy. So they go to Mueller and they go to the domain. And, you know, so what we would like to see happen is some assistance in the way of subsidies that would help these businesses get in the black, the businesses that are in the red, get in the black and get some real specific business development coaching. Um, so those would be the three things. Mm-hmm. So if, if we think about the patterns that we've seen as far as changes in this neighborhood, mm-hmm. new development, also the African-American population leaving Austin, if all of that continues on a similar path, do you all have an eye towards developing businesses for the snapshot of today in 2017? Or do you look at 2019, 2020 in Austin years from now when you're when you're trying to attract and grow businesses in the neighborhood. Gotcha. It's complicated. We're doing both, you know. So um, the future development of East 12th Street and the businesses in the corridor has a lot to do with the businesses that exist currently. So being able to help some of the businesses that are here currently survive the storm and, you know, be around later is fantastic. But we are not naive in that we understand that this is happening. You know, this change is happening all around us. We see it every day. We understand, you know, the specific details of it. And so we we don't want to overlook the importance of looking at what the future development of the district looks like. And so both. It's a we're not in it for a sprint. It's a marathon. Natasha Madison is with the East 12th Street Merchants Association. Natasha, we thank you for joining us live this morning. Thank you kindly. This is Austin's NPR station, KUT and KUT HD1 Austin. We are also online at KUT.org. We've been broadcasting live this morning, and we want to thank Urban Colab at 12th and Chacone Streets in East Austin. That has been our broadcast home this morning. We also want to thank the neighborhood businesses who provided us with breakfast this morning, Figure 8 Coffee, El Tolito, and Rockstar Bagels. I'm Jennifer Staten. This is KUT 90.5. We're coming up on 10 o'clock.